Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much, Bruce. I am indeed delighted to be here. I haven't had the privilege of being in Fort Worth, I think, since maybe sometime in the mid, uh, mid-1980s, mid uh, certainly uh, long before most of the students here were even born. Um, but I am delighted to be here. I always, the only thing I dislike about coming to Texas is as a native of Columbus, Ohio, I always hate to see my Ohio State Buckeyes come down here and whenever they play a Texas team, get shellacked. Um, uh, and one final funny anecdote about that, uh, I grew up, I did not go to Ohio State, but many of my families had, and my grandfather actually won an award from the university for having gone to every football game home or away for 50 years in 1962. This was close to religion. And it wasn't until I was 12 years old that I realized that, yay, Ohio wasn't part of the national anthem. <coughs> because we'd always say, yay, Ohio, after we sang the national anthem, started the football game. What I'd like to talk to you about today, and I apologize, some of you may have heard uh, my remarks yesterday in Dallas. I'll try to make them a little different. Um, But I'd like to talk to you about today where I think we are on both the international and domestic energy front, because I think we are in a very serious situation. Um, Perhaps, I think, without being overly dramatic, uh, certainly one of the more difficult situations in the 36 years or so that has been my professional career dealing with energy. And I think it's also uh, accelerated by the prospect of complete political gridlock in Washington and people who would prefer to demonize one another on both sides of the political aisle rather than deal with the very serious uh, domestic and international problems that confront the international energy environment. It's hard to believe that it was just uh, in November 2008, wherever you are on the political aisle, with the election of President Obama, I think there was at least uh, euphoria amidst a broad portion of the American people, across Republicans, Independents, and obviously Democrats, that change might be in the works, that we had a president who at least verbally committed to ending the gridlock in Washington. We had a president who at least had a vision at that time for a green energy future, which might regalvanize the industrial base of the nation and lead us to a more sustainable uh, energy and environmental path for the future. Uh, We had a president who was obviously, whether you agree with uh, him or not, was deeply committed to trying to move his administration very quickly to prepare a year hence for the Copenhagen negotiations on climate change, which of course occurred just last um, December. But how much a year can change? We of course uh, have had the devastating financial crisis on a global level, and if you haven't read them, uh, you may not agree with everything in them, but I highly commend both Uh, Joseph Stiglitz, the former chief economist of the World Bank's new book, Free Fall, 
and also Mr. Sorokin, reporter for the New York Times, uh, as books that will certainly provoke thought, even if you don't agree with all their ideological conclusions. After all the proposed hope in Copenhagen, uh, we had an international conference that I think, without overstating it, can only be discussed uh, as a fiasco. I was personally there. Uh, uh, 40,000 passes were given out for a room that held 11,000. Certainly not a good indication of uh, UN efficient planning. So more people spent more time out in the cold trying to get in than they did in active negotiations. Although this did lead to sidebar meetings and wherever people could gather. But I think given the conclusions of Copenhagen, we can certainly say that very little, if anything, uh, meaningful was accomplished, even though countries did agree by the end of January to put forth at least voluntary targets, and many countries have done that. I don't think really, depending on what you think about climate change, uh, it made a lot of difference. And of course, since then, we've had the further setbacks to uh, climate change uh, intellectual debate because of the revelations of the uh, uh, computer messages we've seen suggesting that some skeptics had their work kept out of the debate. We've had attention uh, uh, pointed to glaring errors in what was considered the seminal 2007 report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You know, little things like uh, the Himalayan glaciers are going to melt by 2035 when what the report really said was 2350. Uh, but far too many of these, and I think, and I am certainly one who believes in climate change and who believes CO2 is a contributing element. I won't argue that it may be the only element, but I think, sadly, we've now reached the point where there can be no intellectual debate looking at the real science because both sides are completely polarized uh, on the issues. We have, we have gone to a situation, I don't know whether any of you saw it, but just yesterday, uh, uh, I think it was a new Pew poll, showed that 86% of the American populace across the political spectrum do not believe their elected representatives, believe government is broken. Uh, we, have rant, we have rantings in our media on both the right and the left. Uh, that simply try to demonize uh, their opposition. There is no center, and uh, I think this is extremely dangerous for the future of our country, particularly as we get to the energy challenges uh, I'll talk about in the minute. On the foreign policy front, and many of these issues certainly impact energy uh, because uh, they are, many of them are occurring in parts of the world where vital energy supplies are located. It's obvious that we have ongoing wars in Iraq and Iran. As, uh, excuse me, that was a Freudian slip. In, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, uh, if you want to get into questions, I actually, the first half of 2008, uh, spent six months working in Afghanistan, and it doesn't, doesn't make you think that uh, our chances for success are great. We have, perhaps it hasn't gotten as much attention, but back under uh, President Bush, we had a new nuclear comp commercial deal signed with the Indians, which the nuclear industry across the board, including our leading nuclear vendors such as GE, praised because it opens a vital new market for our nuclear exports. But I look at it very differently. 
India is one of the few countries that has still not signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And to me, to kind of say we're cutting a major deal with a nation that still remains in the vanguard of the anti-NPT um, treaty, to me, threw away 30-plus years of nuclear non-proliferation policy and set a very dangerous precedent. And whether we want to admit it or not, there's a direct link, excuse me, there's a direct link between that deal and the Iranian position that they should have access to the complete nuclear fuel cycle because they say, if you do business with a country that's been in the forefront of flaunting the MPT, why do you tell us uh, that we can't do it? Don't get me wrong, I have no sympathy for the Iranians. I firmly believe their nuclear program is a subterfuge for a weapons program, but it does make our position diplomatically <clears throat> much more complex and duplicate, uh, difficult. Uh, clearly, we, uh, we do have Iran, I think, posing a major challenge to the international regime. It, uh, just to remind people, it is actually a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, the difficulty is that, you know, countries uh, uh, have on occasion uh, developed clandestine programs under, uh, while they were members of the NPT, meaning they were not going to acquire such facilities and then withdraw. This is precisely what North Korea did. It used its membership in the NPT <clears throat> to build a clandestine capability, and then once it felt it could go it on its own, it withdrew from the treaty. One of the major weaknesses in the NPT, uh, the withdrawal provisions. We have a resurgent Russia. Uh, just in the last several days, they have once again uh, shown the dangers of commercial, of energy commercial development in the country by once again threatening to take over British Petroleum's vital uh, oil um, and gas reserves in, in the northern part of Russia. Uh, we, of course, have seen uh, their willingness to turn the spigot on natural gas supplies to Ukraine and to the rest of uh, uh, Europe on several occasions now. We've seen the Russian intervention into Georgia, which is, of course, a very important country for some of the transit pipelines uh, for oil and gas that people are talking about building from the Caspian Sea to serve West European markets. Actually, the president of Georgia during that conflict was actually my student many years ago, and all I can say, it doesn't surprise me he got into a war. Uh, very arrogant young man, but also a very bright, very bright young man. Likewise, we have the recent nuclear deal with the United Arab Emirates, what's called a so-called 123 agreement, where the UAE, in exchange for uh, commercial nuclear technology, has agreed to forego the development of the more sensitive parts of the fuel cycle, namely nuclear enrichment and reprocessing, which, if you have those, allow you to de facto become uh, a weapons state. But it's very interesting to me, uh, and this has been heralded as, you know, perhaps a model for other states in the Middle East to follow. It interests me, though, just a couple weeks ago, I was at a conference at the Hoover Institution uh, headed by George Schultz, hardly a man noted for his uh, 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 undiplomatic language. And Mr. Schultz said categorically that he believed that the Emirates had every intention of pursuing a nuclear weapons program, that this was the way to, uh, to get the technology, get the scientific expertise, but that this was directly hedging their bets against a future Iranian nuclear program. And he also pointed out, as anyone who knows the region well will do, that Dubai, one of the Emirates Federation, 
is, of course, a longstanding entrepot for all kinds of smuggling and illegal activities, including providing much of the things that go into Iran through Dubai. Whether you agree with that or not, I thought for someone like Mr. Schultz to make that statement was quite interesting. And of course, finally, we, we have the issue of the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the very real specter that we might see an Israeli nuclear attack against the Iranian nuclear facilities, which in my own estimation would be a disaster of <coughs> unprecedented proportions. What few people seem to remember, if, if, if we or Israel did such an action, is that the major facility that we're talking about is near the holy city of Gum, and were any religious artifacts to be destroyed in Gum, I think we would see the entire Shiite community in the Middle East rise up, making it unsafe for any American the next day to be in the streets virtually anywhere in the Middle East. Now let's turn to the energy situation more directly. It struck me as quite remarkable as we gathered in Copenhagen and we're talking about how, you know, those of us that are polluting nations of the world, how much we had to, the measures we had to take to embark to cut our emissions of CO2, the fact that with 192 nations present, there was no spokesperson for the roughly 1.6 billion people in the world who have no electricity no light bulb, and the 2.2 billion people who have no commercial energy, no kerosene, no charcoal, you go on and on the list. These are people who live on agricultural residues, human refuse as fuel, animal dung, and so forth. And yet there was no spokesperson for these people. And how we think in a world of the future, as particularly as we look to address issues such as climate change and global economic development that we can continue to turn our backs on this amount of people and not have the effect to be more failed states, more angry people, more potential for international terrorism, I myself find quite surprising. Now if we look at the future of energy supplies and look at the most recent February, this month's projection by the International Energy Agency in Paris, some startling things emerge. First, that it is projected that by 2030, total global commercial energy demand, that's across all commercial fuels, oil, gas, coal, whatever, will rise by 60%. And most uh, amazing in that statistic is that some 85% of this increase will not be in the so-called OECD nations, but in the emerging market nations of the world. By 2030, the IEA projects that China will be importing two-thirds of its oil from having been a net oil exporter less than a decade, uh, less than a decade ago. India will be importing at least 70% of its oil. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, the emerging markets will account for at least 80-plus percent of all this increase. We only should think about what that means in terms of enhanced diplomatic competition for access to oil in the Middle East and elsewhere. Doesn't necessarily have to lead to political conflict, but clearly it indicates a dramatic competition for the oil that's out there, and that comes back first and center, is how much oil do you think is going to be out there. The financial costs 
to meet this increase in commercial energy demand, uh, in the IEA's view, will be around $30 trillion. $30 trillion. Now, I know trillions aren't as much as they used to be uh, now that we uh, speak that way of our own budget, but it is, it is a formidable challenge uh, to think about where that kind of global capital is going to be mustered uh, to meet the challenge. And it's particularly interesting because as we look at how India and China and other uh, aspiring countries are responding to this energy challenge, they are rushing out and signing bilateral deals all over the world, in Africa, in Latin America, throughout Asia, and often with rather unsavory regimes that we ourselves do not trade with, such as Myanmar, or formerly Burma, Libya, Sudan, and others. Now, whether the possession of an equity deal actually helps you in the event of an international oil price shock, I think is a very legitimate question. I don't personally think it does. But it does mean that markets themselves are going to have other factors affecting who gets access to oil, particularly in troubled market times, and it's something we ought to think about. Likewise, while we in our country constantly refrain about our concerns about energy security, it's interesting to note that in the last couple of years, for the first time, the OPEC oil-producing countries talk about demand security. They look at, particularly prior to Copenhagen, they look at efforts by the United States, Western Europe, Japan, to move away from a petroleum-based economy to a renewable energy society, and ask, what does that mean for us oil producers? You know, if there's no demand for our oil, uh, we're in big trouble. And they are now saying very actively in diplomatic circles, if you want assurance of supply, we want assurance of demand. Uh, and, and that is particularly true as countries such as Saudi Arabia are being asked, as people look at supply-demand projections for oil in the future, uh, are being asked to make massive investments in new oil production, which quite honestly, the kingdom does not need the revenue. Uh, in fact, some people would argue the more they produce, the more they potentially destabilize the country. Um, so this is a, something to just put in your mindset that this works both ways, security of supply and security and demand. Now let's turn quickly to coal. Clearly, when the delegates met in Copenhagen and in other international fora, uh, most people will say coal is the biggest single problem for greenhouse gas emissions. And if you take a lot of the think tanks in Washington and some of the special interest groups, many of them have actually said we should totally phase out coal. Don't talk to me about clean coal, we want to get rid of coal. Let's look at some hard realities. Coal accounts for 50% of all electrical generation in the United States. We have at least 200 years of coal reserves in the United States. Uh, in China, coal accounts for over 70% of their electricity generation, and they are adding a major new coal-fired electric power plant to their grid every two weeks. In India, coal accounts for nearly 75% of total electric generation. And the other factor, when the people that call for just um, uh, ending coal utilization fail to take into account, is that in all these countries, coal is a huge employer of people. So when you talk about knocking coal out as part of the fuel mix, you are immediately taking on a very, very serious political problem 
how are you going to employ all these millions of people that make their living from coal? And it's not just China, India, and the United States. Uh, Indonesia, a massive emerging market which gets far too little attention, is actually now the biggest coal exporter in the world. And Indonesia aspires to not only use much more coal domestically, and of course as a country with some of the few remaining uh, rainforests, just as cause for great concern about what the coal pollution may do. And other leading powers such as South Africa and Poland, all countries that have, um, that have large-scale coal utilization. So I argue, rather than look, turn our back on coal, I, I believe the United States should be in the forefront of an international effort, not a bilateral effort, an international effort to join with the other major coal-consuming nations of the world to prove that clean coal technology or coal sequestration and storage is both technically possible and, and commercially possible. And both are obviously important. Uh, I know some people will say that no, there's no, you'll see the ads on television, there's no such thing as clean coal. I don't believe it for a minute. There are some prototype plants already underway. Yes, they are not proven, but it seems strange to me uh, that a nation who in four years could develop the Manhattan Project in the depths of World War II with a technology we knew far less about than we know about coal cannot muster the resources with an international consortia to, to prove that this can be done. And if it can't be done, or you simply say, Dr. Eminger, I'm, I don't care what you say, I don't like coal, then I ask you this question. Tell me where the coal-generated electricity is going to be, what fuel the coal-generated electricity is going to be replaced with. And the answer is not pretty. Now let's look, because one of the options that might replace coal, let's turn to the nuclear power question. Uh, increasingly, there is talk of an atomic power resurgence, the so-called nuclear renaissance. I was just last week at a conference in Paris with the whole uh, European nuclear industry, and I must say, uh, they see things very differently than I do. Uh, clearly, there is a nuclear resurgence. There are a number of nuclear power plants being built around the world, with many more to come. China has 14 under construction. Uh, another 20 and near term, near term going to start construction. They are talking about building 100 uh, new nuclear power plants by 2020. Whether this is technically possible or technologically possible, I think is uh, just in terms of the scale of what they're trying to do, questionable. But every time people question the Chinese's ability, Chinese ability to do something, they do it. Um, we, see, uh, we obviously see an interest in commercial nuclear expansion in, in India, uh, more plants planned for Japan, for Korea. Uh, in the United States, we have, remember, we have not built a new grassroots nuclear power plant in the United States since the Three Mile Island incident in 1979, but we have roughly 20 plants in the pipeline to be licensed by the NRC. A lot of people take great solace in the fact that just the other day, uh, both in his State of the Union message uh, and in his announcement of loan guarantees for the first two nuclear plants in 30 years in Georgia, that the president seems to have changed his position on nuclear power. Uh, I don't believe it for a minute. I was an early advisor to the president and uh, uh, as a supporter of nuclear power, let's just say uh, one got rapidly sent to the garbage pan. Uh, 
as the environmental community took over. I think these two new plants the president has proposed, these were actually called for and funded in the Energy Policy Act of 2005. So it's already been five years since the NRC or the Department of Energy has acted. Uh, the cost of nuclear power plants in the United States is staggering. We're talking about at least $9 billion for a new nuclear power plant today in the United States. Um, now that's not to say you can't build them. The nuclear industry will say, well, yes, but plants now are built for 60 years, so that while they are high cost, and on the old adage of 40 years, were not as competitive with other fuels, if you amortize them over 60 years, in point of fact, the per kilowatt charge is actually very good. And that is all true. But the point is, you still are looking at huge capital investments at an era where it's very difficult to raise capital. And even with loan guarantees, which the president now wants to raise to some $54 billion uh, at $9 billion a whack, you're still only talking about perhaps six, six facilities hardly something transformational uh, given the energy use we have in this country. And this is the same administration, may I remind you, that has killed, totally now killed, the funding for Yucca Mountain, the nuclear waste repository we have been building for nearly 30 years in the Nevada desert. After we have spent $22 billion, we have absolutely nothing to show for a long-term nuclear waste repository. Now, companies like Duke Power, uh, joined by the French uh, uh, nuclear energy giant Areva, argue, well, there's another solution, and that is to engage in commercial reprocessing. Commercial reprocessing reduces. Uh, this is where you take the waste after the reaction and uh, try to take out the better, the more usable elements, mainly depleted uranium and plutonium, both of which can be used in the future uh, as fuel for the next generation of nuclear reactors. The difficulty is, of course, is that once you have a reprocessing facility, you have the potential to be to extract the plutonium to make a bomb as well as use the plutonium for a fuel. And so while we may not be concerned if the United States and other OECD countries have such technology, and currently only Britain, France, and Japan have it, Obviously, if other nations that in volatile parts of the world make this argument that they want reprocessing for re commercial purposes, we start to see an unraveling, a further unraveling of the non-proliferation uh, regime. We also have the problem that as more and more the nuclear renaissance does occur, and there is more and more demand for enriched uranium, and by that I mean most uranium, as it occurs in nature, cannot be used directly to generate a civilian nuclear reaction. You need a process where the isotopes are upgraded <clears throat> so that it can generate a, a nuclear reaction. And those are called enrichment plants. The problem is once you have an enrichment plant that allows you to get the uranium up to the grade for a civilian nuclear reaction, that is another avenue for upgrading further to having a nuclear weapon. And this is precisely the concern we have right now about what Iran is apparently attempting to do. And, but if you believe this nuclear market is just going to mushroom around the world, then there are concerns about whether the existing commercial nuclear enrichment market is large enough to meet the demand. And as a result, you now have countries like Brazil, South Africa, 
Kazakhstan, Canada, and Australia looking at joining the international uranium enrichment market, uh, which of course will mean more sensitive material is out there for potential diversion. It also raises questions in my mind, not obviously Canada and Australia, but countries like Kazakhstan, if the market becomes competitive, is there a danger that some countries will offer sweetheart deals under the table that might send such materials to countries uh, <clears throat> that we would prefer it not to go to? And the other interesting dimension that gets very little talk, talk about is as we have all these sensitive materials and reprocessing and plutonium and depleted uranium moving around the world to reprocessing centers, uh, we're going to have a much greater attention is going to have to be paid to the whole whether international commerce in these fuels is adequately protected. I believe today that it is, but if you're talking about the volumes that we may see in the future, we need to think about that. Now let me, uh, let me just talk quickly about the oil market. In the International Energy Agency's most recent forecasts of this month, uh, they see global demand rising just under 2 million barrels a day uh, during the year 2010. Interestingly, they see demand in the OECD nations virtually flat. And so all this enhanced demand is to occur in China, uh, India, uh, other non-OECD, Asia, and the Middle East. So this is where the growth market is if you're in the international uh, petroleum business. But most alarming in the IEA's forecasts is that in almost all the major oil-producing regions in the OECD countries, they see a decline in oil production. This is true not only in Norway, but Canada, the United States, uh, and although it's not in the OECD, Mexico. Interestingly, the increases in oil production occur only in Russia, the Caspian Sea, China, and Brazil, and natural gas liquids inc increase almost a million barrels a day uh, in, the OPEC, in the OPEC countries. And if you look at their forecasts on out, these same kinds of trends are at least uh, likely to continue with huge increases in oil production on the horizon in Brazil and Iraq in particular. Some people, according to the IEA, see Iraq emerging even as an eight to nine million barrel a day oil producer once it ever gets its uh, political uh, situation under control. Now, in the United States, from an energy policy perspective, as one who's followed this for many, many years, I find it very painful to say that I think United States energy policy is not only broken, it is illogical, and it is totally dysfunctional. Uh, while supporters on the left will take great umbrage that the so-called Markey bill, the climate change bill, was uh, defeated. This was one of the worst pieces of legislation, in my view, that has ever been written. And contrary to what it was pretended to be, which was to deal with climate change, there were so many loopholes for so many special interests. And interestingly, the ones that got the most loopholes in the bill were the coal industry, precisely the ones we are trying most to reduce CO2. Uh, I hope, I hope it does not resurrect. The bill is 1,300 pages, which gives you an idea of the pork, the, pork buried, the pork buried in that bill. 
Now, what the president is trying to do with the, with the failure of the bill to, uh, to clear is he's trying to strip out the uh, energy portions of that bill, the pure energy portions that were put in there by Senator Bingaman um, and try to come up with a comprehensive piece of energy legislation that can be passed by both the Republicans and the Democrats. And I think, furthermore, this is why recently the president's nuclear initiatives and his, uh, his statements recently changing his uh, position on offshore oil and gas drilling somewhat, I think this is part of a compromise to get the broader coalition behind uh, this new energy bill. But then one has to look further. <clears throat> what does the administration's position really? I don't know if any of you are familiar, it's a rather arcane Washington document called the Green Book. <clears throat> but it is a book put out by the Treasury <clears throat> highlighting what, the what any administration plans to do on tax increases or tax changes. And if you look at the energy provisions, there's some very interesting but worrisome statements. The, and the call for cutting back uh, tax credits for the domestic oil and gas production industry. It's argued that the money saved can be put into renewal, to extend renewable energy tax credits, thus improving the nation's energy security. It seems to miss the point that the renewable energy that will get enhanced funding is used overwhelmingly in electricity generation, whereas, of course, in the United States, we use almost no oil in electricity generation anymore. And it seems to miss the point that with the great domestic oil and gas industry many of you represent here in the room, of course accounting for much of our new discoveries each year, that the impact, I believe, in these changes will be actually a fall in domestic oil and gas production. Attendantly, that will have to be offset by uh, a rise in oil imports in the case of petroleum, not in the case of gas. Uh, and of course, that will be deleterious not only to our national security if we're importing more oil, but certainly to our balance of payments, where this year at current oil prices, we are already going to spend $370 billion on imported oil. It's very, it's very, very curious, the logic uh, such as there is behind this. Now, gas, I don't need to tell any of you because you're sitting right here on top of it. But obviously, I think shale gas is the great story not only domestically, but perhaps less noticed internationally, because there are many countries in the world, in China, countries in Eastern Europe, uh, South America, and Africa, where people are very optimistic <coughs> that the future for shale gas is tremendous. And if this all comes to pass, obviously shale gas on a worldwide basis can be a transforming element in our uh, international energy situation, as well, of course, our domestic situation. Just for example, with uh, if you remember just a few years ago, we were projecting that uh, we would be importing 40% of our gas as LNG in the not-too-distant future. And now, of course, with the tremendous shale gas fines, it's possible that we will not need this LNG, which will have the added impact that it could be diverted to Western Europe, for example, where it could help Europe in their ongoing disputes with the Russians uh, over natural gas supplies and even put pressure, downward pressure, on natural gas prices <clears throat> in Western Europe. I will only say further about natural gas. I think it is, I think it will serve as a bridge 
to a renewable energy future, hopefully down the road 15, 20 years, a clean coal energy future and a nuclear power energy future. But gas will be the fuel, if anyone's smart in Washington, that gets uh, the predominance of, of support. But whether that actually helps or hurts, one doesn't know. Over breakfast, I heard someone say, it's the price of gas going up. Well, you know, that's a two-edged sword. Because of where the price of gas is today, last month, gas had the record level utilization in the electric power industry. I don't know whether you people have followed that, but it's because of where the price of gas is. It's competing against all other energy resources as a fuel for electric fire generation. <clears throat> if you get back up to six, seven dollars or higher, that market may uh, be more difficult to penetrate. Let me turn quickly to renewables. There is no doubt that um, renewable energy offers a tremendous opportunity in the United States. We have vast reserves, obviously, of wind and solar resources. What doesn't get mentioned so often, however, is the fact that these are far away from major load centers. And if we really wish to totally utilize our wind and solar resources, we have to completely rebuild our national electricity transmission grid. And this is varying estimates of 250 to 350 billion dollars that would be required uh, to make a modern grid over a 10-year period. Now, that may not, that's a big number, but when you think about 350 plus billion for oil it's, uh, per year, it's not such a big number. But unless we do that, <coughs> it is not going to be possible <coughs> to use these resources to their full utilization. That said, just to give you an idea, you know in Texas, uh, wind last year grew by 39%, fastest growing energy source. We now have 35,000 megawatts uh, of wind power in the United States. But to place that in context, that is between 6 and 7% of total uh, generation. The same is true uh, with solar. Uh, the potential is virtually unlimited uh, in the desert southwest and a few other parts in the country. But the reality is as of 2009, we have 2,000 megawatts of installed, installed solar capacity in the United States out of roughly 450,000 megawatt grid. So while these things are growing and need to be supported, uh, these are not game changers, at least, uh, at least in, in, the near, in the near term. Let's turn to transportation, and then we'll finish up and leave time for some questions. There is no question that the world is probably moving towards electrification of uh, motor vehicles. Uh, we see this with the Chinese already having some. We see the Nissan... Leaf coming, the Chevy Volt, and a whole slew of other companies. But if we look at all the electric vehicles in the United States today, and I'm not talking about the Prius or you know the hybrids, but if we look at all the electric, pure electric vehicles in the United States today, there are only 56,000, and roughly 80% of those are in low usages, such as golf carts and other such conveniences. Now that's not to say the market can't take off. But I just want to put in context that we have 246 million vehicles on the road today. 
So in terms of really making even the most advocate, strong advocates of, this, uh, of electric vehicles will tell you we would be lucky to have 5 million in a decade. Now, that's a start, but 5 million is not transformative and it doesn't reduce our dependency uh, on the Middle East um, or other sources for energy. So where does this leave us? It leaves us at a point where every fuel has its champions. Uh, every fuel has its champions that make outrageous claims that it is the solution. I don't believe any fuel is the solution. I believe we need a diversified fuel mix. I think we are blessed right now with the change in the natural gas market, and that can be transformative. We haven't talked about there is still a tremendous amount we can do with energy efficiency. Uh, people don't realize that in the last 15 years we have doubled the number of households in the United States, and yet because of improved technology, the household sector does not use any more in percentage terms of energy than it did 15 years ago, and most people think we can double that again. Uh, your refrigerator, stoves, whatever. Uh, clearly the move towards green buildings, tremendous opportunities in energy efficiency. But the one message I want you to leave, leave you with today is don't rule out any fuel source until you at least have done a sober calculation of saying, if we don't do coal, where's that go what's that going to be replaced with? If we don't do nuclear, what that, what's that going to be replaced with? And when you look at the scale of the problem on the international level, it is truly humbling to, uh, to realize how much energy the world needs to hopefully have a sustainable energy future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Hevinger. <coughs> Normally, I'm going would moderate. We have a very small group today, so I'm going to ask you to do your own moderating. Okay. We will go until precisely... Uh, 8.45 and we'll stop in the interest of uh, your schedule. So we'll go for about 15 minutes. We'll stop at 8, 8.45. I have the first question, which comes from David Breland at Pasco High School. And David wants to know, should the U.S., and I assume he means the U.S. government, <coughs> shift budget more towards green technology research and development or towards further production of <coughs> domestic, <coughs> excuse me, domestic fossil fuels? And I would assume, reading into that, what you were talking about with clean coal and, and the technologies around that? It's a very good question. Uh, I think the answer is we need to do both. Uh, I'm not trying to duck your question. If you actually look at what Mr. Obama has done for, uh, for renewable technology, it is between the stimulus and other packages, it is quite staggering. It's in excess of $100 billion. Uh, so a lot of that's tax credits, it's not direct transfers. Uh, so, but clearly, uh, but clearly, given what I suggested, that the continued domination of, uh, at least for the time, for oil and gas and coal, we don't want to be niggardly uh, where we can have breakthrough technologies. So I, I would argue that in addition to the very strong support for renewables, we ought to do that for coal. I, and by that I mean prove carbon capture and sequestration. There are three different technologies essentially. I think we ought to have a prototype plant in each, hopefully with international cooperation. Um, nuclear's got its loan guarantees. It certainly doesn't need anything more. Uh, if they can't do it with $54 billion, then so what? Uh, and I say that as a supporter. Uh, so I think we need both. But, but clearly, uh, municipalities 
can do a lot on your renewables. You know, we now have we now have municipalities that are encouraging people to put on solar panels. Big problem has always been the front end cost. There are now some uh, some cities that are leading by funding that, putting it into a 20-year loan in your property tax bill, so it reduces the upfront cost. And that where that's been done in Boulder and Berkeley and a whole slew of other cities, it's had a very dramatic effect accelerating uh, residential use of solar and wind, particularly. Yes, sir. You didn't mention ethanol. How that affects it. Well, I actually did the first public policy study of ethanol for the Renewable Fuels Association in 1983. And I will be honest, it's one of the few studies that I've ever done that I'm embarrassed by. Uh, I am not a supporter, I am not a strong supporter of ethanol. And I know maybe in this part of the country that's not popular. I still think uh, when, you, when, you, when you look at the energy that goes into producing ethanol, uh, I think we would be much better focusing on our long term, we'd be much better focusing if you want a liquid fuel on some of the algaes uh, or the electric car. I personally think we'll see a diversified transportation fleet over time, uh, both regionally and, you know, whatever utilization you want. You might have a car, you know, that you drive to work that runs on ethanol or whatever, but then you're going to have something that you can take a vacation in and not worry about fuel refueling. But I think... Uh, I know ethanol has my good friend Jim Woolsey, former CIA director, is Mr. Ethanol himself, uh, but I just, I, I just don't think it's the way to go. I know a lot of people are making money in the ethanol business. I know uh, uh, it can help uh, with blending other chemicals, but I'm not a supporter anymore. Yes, sir. You got uh, our heart rate up when you suggested Iran was in a war. Society's from Iran. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there's been a lot of discussion uh, <laughs> and research on the, the future of end-user electric generation versus central grid generation. And uh, changing the concept of the central grid as a backup system with a higher and higher percentage of end-user. We, we distribute commercial industrial wind turbines and solar. And, and we believe whether it's that or the blue box or whatever, we're going to see more and more of that. Have you had any thoughts on that subject? Thank you for asking that question. I was remiss not to address that. That is absolutely true. And that, and that is where we pit the argument that I was making for centralized, a new centralized generation against uh, what you're talking about. I, I think what we will actually see is your kinds of technology take off increasingly. I still think we need to build a centralized grid to, uh, as the backbone for our baseload. Um, but I think, absolutely, I was remiss not to say that. I, I think decentralized generation will become more and more and more important as we go down the road. Thank you for asking that question. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't know if you read Hot, Flat, and Crowded, but I wanted to ask you, do you, I mean, do you think that we have to have $4, $5 gallon gasoline, really expensive gasoline before uh, renewable, like, like you were speaking about earlier, before they can just really take off? Well, I have, I have been a long-standing supporter of a large gasoline tax. Uh, and to show you how, what political acumen I have, I don't, if you remember 1980, John Anderson, a third-party candidate, I was an advisor to him and helped write a speech in which we advocated a 50-cent increase in the gasoline tax. The next day, we went from 22% to 8%. Uh, <laughs> 
Yes, I, I would like to see an increase in the gasoline tax, and I think if you then had some kind of rebate system so that you reduce the payroll tax so you could make it a, you know, uh, a balanced tax in terms of not adding to the woes of the American taxpayer, I think it's the only thing that will get Americans to seriously think about building, you know, better and more fuel-efficient cars. I was just in Finland, uh, you know, I'm not extolling uh, extortionate taxation, but $11 a gallon for gasoline. You, t you go 15 blocks in a taxi and you pay 20 bucks, uh, you know, in, in, in central Helsinki. Yeah. But a lot of people on bicycles, a lot of people on motor scooters. <laughs> now, whether we want to live that way is, a, is another question. But I do think we have to raise the gasoline tax. What, I mean, and, okay, but the way how China is doing it, obviously China, they're increasing their demand for fossil fuels, but they're beating us on solar panels. They're producing, you know, many more electric cars than are they. Beating us on everything. Yeah, but at the same time, they're increasing their demand for fossil fuels too, so right. they seem to be doing Well, I think we need to do a lot more on battery, you know, a lot more on electric battery research because if we can break that, that hurdle in terms of increasing the distance for electric cars, I think the market would really, would really accelerate and take off. Uh, this is critical to the nation's energy future. I think we need to. I think we need to put a lot more money. And this is controversial. I think we need to put a lot more money into public transportation than we put into highway building. <clears throat> Maybe in Texas that's not very popular, but with all your road network. But you know we've got to find a way to discourage driving, and particularly discourage driving. And one one person in a car. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you said what percentage of uh, our energy comes from wind, but I'm assuming, and I've heard on the grapevine that it's considerably smaller than the amount of energy produced by wind in Europe. Do you have some facts and figures on that? Uh, it's about six to seven percent in this country. It's dramatically lower than in Europe. I don't have those numbers right in front of me, but uh, Germany would be in the neighborhood of 30%, for example. But they did that by having a, a very aggressive, what's called a feed-in tariff, where basically if you build a windmill and you had a 20-year guaranteed contract at a certain price, which was very, very generous, in another incarnation of mine, I'm actually vice chairman of a company that builds wind and, and biofuel plants, and we did a plant in Bremerhaven, and I'll tell you what we got for that plant was extortionate. I mean, we didn't complain, uh, but we got nearly 38 cents a kilowatt hour for putting up a windmill. Uh, but that said, the Germans, with their feed-in tariffs, have created a new industry that employs 250,000 people which one can't laugh at, you know. Was there a cheaper way to produce 250,000 jobs? One could argue. But it has been successful in what they were designed to do, and in particularly a lot of those jobs were designed to be in the former East Germany, which had huge unemployment problems, and it has made a major contribution to reducing employment, unemployment in, in the eastern part of Germany. Yes? Andre Evinger, you talked about increasing Prices at some point are going to choke down the demand. 
that's a tough one. Um, 2030, I, um, I think what we're going to see with OECD demand, and particularly with all these new technologies we're talking about, uh, with OECD demand, and I'm talking not just oil, but across the board, being relatively flat, I could actually see in the OECD that oil demand could actually fall from current levels. Not dramatically, but fall. Uh, so I think you, I think you, if I had to bet, if I had to bet on a price in 2030, I would say probably in the 100 to $110 range in the day's dollars, looking at global demand. Now, you know, that all depends on whether you buy Matt Simon's article, you know, peak oil theory. I have never bought the peak oil theory because I said, or any other commodity, you know, and I say, unless you tell me your price assumptions and your technological change assumptions, I can't tell you when there's peak oil. Uh, and the reality is we keep finding oil, even though, I mean, on a global basis, we're still finding more oil than we're using. Now, obviously, by definition, there's some point where oil peaks, but I don't think it's any time uh, soon. I, I think, you know, as the price goes up, the Arctic regions, which I've always had a long-standing interest in, uh, and, and other high-cost regions of the world will open up and I think, I mean, just look at what's happened in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, we thought all of a sudden the deep plays we're seeing in the Gulf. Now, are those going to be prodigious in numbers or just an odd hit here or there? We don't know. But once we have the capacity to drill at these very, very deep levels, I think we're going to find a lot more energy than we have now. We have time for one more question. Right you sort of <coughs> Number one, you know, you talk about natural gas. You did not make a mention about natural gas in the transportation industry. Thoughts on that from the domestic perspective. Also, there seems to be a disconnect between the talk about electric powered vehicles and the grid capacity and the generation capacity of the United States. So there seems to be a disconnect. We hit a subject near and dear to my heart. Um, I think I actually did the first CNG study for AGA back in the 80s. Uh, I think it's a great technology. I think there's a lot more we can do with additional vehicle fleets with the first place to go, um, you know, where you return to a centralized refueling station. But I think, you know, recognizing some serious infrastructure limitations, I think Boone Pickens' idea of gas for large trucks, I could envisage that at least on our major east-west and maybe north-south interstate highways, uh, as we could develop the technology so that we could have fueling stations at farther distances than we do today, so because trucks aren't going to want to stop every 150 miles or so, I could envisage with some breakthroughs in technology that uh, CNG could be a great, uh, a great fuel for 18-wheelers. Will that happen? I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet the ranch on it because somebody's going to have to uh, finance the infrastructure for that to, to occur. But I think CNG's greatest future is probably uh, uh, really penetrating much greater use of uh, vehicle fleets. Uh, on the, uh, I'm sorry, your other question was on? Disconnect between the oh. talk about electric cars. Most people, believe, most people believe that with the plug-in hybrids coming, the plug-in electric vehicles, that up to about uh, 10 million cars, that with most of those cars being refueled at night, uh, when, of course, the grid demand is low, that we would be able to have up to about 10 million cars without adding any real additional electric generation capacity. 
That doesn't answer your question about stability of the grid, which there are some highly arcane technical issues. But I think we could have a sizable penetration of plug-ins before we had major problems, either with the grid or with the need to build new power stations. But keep in mind, even 10 million cars, in compared to 246 on the road today, million, uh, is still an important development, but not transformative. Well, thank you all very much. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Dr. Heminger, and thank you for attending today, and we'll see you at the next uh, meeting of our World Affairs Council at Fort Worth and Dallas. Thanks. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.